Man, you guys can have a seat. All right, uh, quick editorial correction. I told you guys the 25th for the uh, membership class. It's actually on the 18th, the, the week prior. Because on the, the 25th, that is uh, Candy Dance Weekend. I don't know if any of that matters to any of you guys, but it matters to a lot of people. So we moved it from the 25th to the 18th. All right. I think that's the only thing I messed up on. We'll find out. All right. Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles back to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, that very first book of the Bible. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 18, which is actually the whole chapter. And if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles around the room, that's on page 9. And as you are finding your way there, let me remind us of how important this study in Genesis is for the Christian. Because this is the story of our God. It's a reminder about God's provision, God's grace. And how his provision and his grace, it did not start when Jesus was born. On Christmas Day. Right? That's not the first time that we see God moving or moving into humanity to work according to his will. But rather, what we've been learning throughout Genesis is actually God's provision and his grace started in eternity past. Before anything was here. But God was. And as we learn in those very first few chapters, even in the Garden of Eden... We see God making promises, God providing for his people, God showing his grace, that undeserved gift towards sinners like us. And as we've been looking at Genesis, those first few chapters have been creating the foundation that will then lead to the person and work of Christ. Connecting all of the Bible back to Genesis. It's not just this, you know, First book of the Bible that happens to have some you know, unique stories about the creation of the world and maybe some of the first humans, but rather it's our story. It's the story of God moving things in his perfect direction. And Genesis then serves as that beginning book, that beginning of God's revelation towards us, the beginning of seeing those promises that he made to his people, which will culminate in Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, one is, I, I'm glad you're here. Truly, I really am. I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to walk into a church, whether you're maybe new or visiting, or maybe you're not even quite sure if you believe any of this, anything that maybe you've heard Christians say they believe. It's, it takes a lot of courage to walk into a room like this. So I want to commend you on that. But I hope, this is my prayer for you, is I hope that through the reading, through the preaching of God's word, you will see that you're just like all of us, or we're just like you. That every single one of us in the room today, we're desperate for God to move. We're desperate for God to intervene. We're desperate for His grace. Because our hearts can be deceptive. We can make choices in our lives that have massive ramifications. Oftentimes that we're not even close to being aware of in the moment. But by the mercy and grace of God, he will lift our eyes to a greater reality. 
to a greater Abram. And that's Jesus. So let's go ahead and stop there for now. What I'd like to do is just pray one more time. I want to pray for you. And I ask that as I'm praying for you, that you guys would pray for me. And then I'll read chapter 13. Well, Father, before we actually read your word and and try to just walk through it and pull out what do you have for us today? Why as a church in the year 2022 are we looking back all these years, thousands of years, back in time and seeing how what you did then matters for us today? And God, I pray for each person in this room, man, woman, child, God, that you would just give them eyes to see you, eyes to see and understand what your word is designed to communicate, to illuminate you, Jesus, above all. God, I also want to pray for our kiddos and the teachers next door as they're looking at the same passage. And, and those gifted teachers are trying to, to teach it in a way that even the littlest of minds, the littlest of hearts, in which you have entrusted to be here this morning, would be able to see you and in their need for a Savior in Christ. So God, be with them, be with those teachers, be with all of us. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, hopefully you guys have found your way there. If not, it'll be on the screens behind me. I'm going to go ahead and just read all of Genesis chapter 13. 18 verses. And we're, we're picking up speed now, right? We're, we're going to be going. Hopefully a chapter a week for the next several weeks. But here's chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from Negev as far as Behel to a place where his tent had been at the beginning between Behel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. That's why we say that. Now, last week, in our look at Genesis 12, we saw that God continued to give grace to Abram, continued to protect his promise that one day, one day through Abram, that there would be a great nation. And between, and because of his offspring, there would be a blessing to the entire world. And we learn that God always protects his promise and he will not relinquish it even when we fail. Even when we fail. And I think it's safe for us to say, if you look back at Genesis 12, that Abram failed pretty miserably in Egypt, didn't he? Right? He basically sold off his wife in order to accrue um, his own life, but also to get rich. It was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. But here in Genesis 13, we actually see great faithfulness from Abram. We see Abram trusting God in ways that he didn't in chapter 12. So what happened, right? Did Abram, by his own will and his own work, somehow become more spiritual or more religious on his way from Egypt back to the promised land? Well, I don't think so. In fact, actually, the only thing that we're told about Abram in Egypt, now in Abram, back in the promised land in Canaan, is what? Is that he had received grace. That God had given him something that he did not deserve. And what did Abram then do upon return to the land? He worshipped. It's the only thing that we know that has changed between the Abram of Egypt and the Abram back in the promised land is that he had received grace and started worshipping again. Because worship does bring us back to God, right? It reminds us of who God is and reminds us who we are not. Because often during the week, if you're anything like me, you can forget. You can have things get twisted. You can put more confidence in yourself than anything else. But Abram worshipped, and he received grace. And hear me on this, church. Grace changes you. When you understand what God has given you despite you, it actually changes you. Grace changes. Grace motivates. A lot of people think, if you talk about grace too much, right? if you just tell people that God loves to give to those that don't deserve it, it's going to cause them to have almost a license to sin. They're just going to go and do whatever they want because grace is there, isn't it? But here's what we see throughout Scripture, church, is that grace changes you. Grace actually gives you a heart, a desire to want to worship, to want to follow, to want to trust. Because you're not doing those things in order to get something from God. You're doing those things because everything that you ever would need has already been given to you by Him. 
So you don't learn it to earn God's love. You do it because you have it. You do it because you have it. So now as we look at chapter 13, we're looking at this chapter under the banner of lift up your eyes, right? It's the title of the sermon. Because as we'll see in this chapter, we see Moses, who's the author here in Genesis, commenting on basically two sets of eyes. The eyes of Lot and the eyes of Abram. Both desiring very different things. So if you have chapter 13 open, look at verse 1. We see that Abram and Lot had journeyed back to Negev. But then in verse 3 we see that Abram had returned to the very place that he first built an altar when he entered the land. And, and these altars, in case you're not familiar, would have been like almost like these you know, big pile of rocks or these little mini mountains. And they were these visible, tangible places to remind us or to remind the person who built it of who God is. That's what an altar was for. It was a, a spot to be reminded of who God is and to worship there. And so Abram returned to this place. Returned to, the, to be reminded of who God is and who is the God that spoke to him. The God who appeared to him. The God who, despite Abram, called him to say, you belong to me. Come, follow me. And so Abram starts worshiping again. But starting in verse 6, we're introduced to a problem. A problem that's in the land. And what's that problem? Well, there was strife. There was strife between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen because of what? Because they were there was, there was so lucrative in their livestock and their possessions that it says that the spot that they were in the land could not support both parties. It could not support all the livestock and all the, all, the, all the men and women and servants. Now, Abram, who I believe was growing in grace, right, growing in wisdom, saw how deadly this strife could be for the family. And he took action. He knew that the family strife over resources... And control of those resources would ultimately just damage everybody involved. And if I could just say pastorally about this for a second, I know that there's many people in this room who have deep wounds in just dark moments of their own past, largely along these same lines that you've had to go through maybe a strife with family or family members over the control of resources. Maybe that's from, right, an estate or maybe some, some kind of an inheritance or will. I know that it caught, it's very real, right? That strife in which Abram anticipated is a strife in which many of you guys have actually had to live through. And, and I bring that up because I want to remind you of a couple of things. One is that God knows about that strife. We have this account in Scripture, not only because it's going to point us to Christ, but also because we're reminded that God knows about humanity. He knows that this is real in the lives of his people. And if God knows about this, then you can actually go to him about this. You can go to him and say, well, you know. You know the pain of strife in this area. And he cares about these situations. 
And maybe even from here we can glean some wisdom on how do we approach these things. So Abram sees this strife, right? He sees this, this tension building, and what does he do? Well, in many ways, he actually lays down his rights in order to serve what is most important to him in this moment. And what is that? It's worship. So he tells Lot, separate yourself from me. Here's all the land, and tell me where you want to go. Like, where we're at can't support us both. This is all the land in which God has promised. Where do you want to go? And says, if you go right, I'll go left. Right? Whatever you reject to go to, I'll take on. Right? No conditions, nothing. Now, we have to know this, that Abram, who was likely older than Lot, in these kind of civil disputes, he would have had the right to choose first. That would have been his, his right in the familial structure. But yet, we see Abram laying down his right in this moment to serve his greatest priority. Which we have to remember, what did Abram do just a few verses prior to this? Right? When he got into another situation that he had certain rights in, what did he do? He failed. Right? He tried to manipulate the situation in Egypt to serve his bottom line, to get for him what he desired most. But yet he doesn't do that here. He fully and nobly trusts God in ways that he didn't in chapter 12. And Abram actually believes God. He believes God. He believes in his promises. Believes that whatever God does is right. And he surrenders to that providential will, which is very difficult. Abram learned the hard way of what it looks like to try to beat God, didn't he? And yet, how often do we have to relearn that lesson ourselves? Constantly be put in places or situations where we're tempted to go, all right, I'm going to figure this out. I'm, I'm going to serve you know, my greatest needs here and, and just go from there. But what we see here is, I think, a radical transformation that Moses is trying to highlight of when you are captivated by this identity in Christ— you are actually then free to give up a whole lot of things. You're actually able to actually sacrifice a lot of things. Not because they're not important, but because you have something that's greater. You will always serve what is most important to you. Always. Now, we'll come back to Abram in a moment. But here in the text, what we see is Moses then highlighting what does Lot do with this information? Where does Lot go? And specifically, we'll see the massive ramification that actually happened with Lot. So go ahead and jump down to verse 10. Verse 10. After Abram gave him right, this right to choose whatever land that he wanted to go to, we see in verse 10, Lot lift up his eyes. And immediately, they are fixed on a piece of land. Probably a piece of land that Lot has been thinking about. Right? He didn't have to look around. He didn't have to look northward or upward or southward. He narrowed in right where he wanted to go. And where was that? Well, it says in the, in the Jordan Valley. A place with water. It would be lush. And then we even have some descriptors of that land, don't we? Notice it. It says it's a land like the Garden of Eden. That's a good thing, right? right? The Garden of Eden would have been a, a good 
contrast to go, I want to go back there. But then Moses continues to explain this land. It's like Egypt. It's in the direction of Zoar. And then that's going on a big, uh-oh. So there's more to it than it just being rich with water. There's actually far more to it, as we will see. Because I, I think, church, what we're, we're doing is seeing the beginning of where Lot's heart is actually at. And Moses is giving us some literary clues into what he's actually thinking about. And what he's thinking about is he's not asking, okay, where does God want me to go? Lot's saying, where do I want to go? What would best serve me? What would make me maybe the most money or set me up for the most earthly success? What is drawing my eye? What just looks good? What would make me feel good? Regardless of God is there or not. I think what we're seeing is Lot's heart beginning to be exposed a little bit. And then to be extra clear, notice this at the end of verse 11. It says, then Lot chose for himself. It was a me-centered decision, right? It was me-driven. Lot chose for who? Himself. Himself. And then it says something very interesting. Very interesting. It says, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed where? East. East. Now, if you have been with us since the beginning of our study in Genesis, that phrase would be familiar to you. Now, in case you haven't been with us, and I know many of you haven't, when Moses, whenever Moses wrote that someone went east, he was not just giving some directional orientation of where they physically went, but Moses is trying to use a literary tool to say Moses was moving away from God. To go east meant to, that the, basically the position of your heart, the direction of your heart, was set to go opposite of where God is. It was, it's the very opposite of repentance. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Christ. Well, going east is turning from Christ and going the opposite direction. That's what to go east often means in Genesis. So Moses uses that language that he went east. He turned from God. And this situation in particular meant east meant going where? To Sodom. And Moses makes note in verse 13 that this particular city was full of great sinners against the Lord. It was a place for those currently that inhabited it was a spot. that It was a people that was not going to encourage Lot to walk with God. It was not going to be a place that encouraged Lot to trust in the promises of God. Now, when we think about the original audience who had been receiving this from Moses, right, the nation of Israel, as they're wandering in the wilderness on their way back to the promised land, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later from here, they would have been familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I know many of you are. But here is our first instance where Moses is saying, hey, before God did anything, before, right, the destruction of the city, there has always been this deep enemies of God there. 
sinners. And not just sinners in a general sense in which we all are, but it says particular great sinners who had a particular emphasis to rebel against who God is and what he has given them. And so Moses is highlighting when Lot is choosing to go there, there's massive ramifications. That it's not just a piece of land, but it's a, it's a posture that's going to set up Lot's ability to be encouraged in his faith or not. And Lot didn't, it doesn't give any indication that Lot was worried about his faith here. Worried about, hey, what is moving here actually going to do to my own heart and to my own thoughts? Is it going to help my worship or not? We don't see any evidence of that. And here's where we can't harp on Lot and go, man, how could he do that? Because how often do we do that, church? Right? Make these huge life decisions. And completely not calculate in as, what is this going to do to my worship? What is this going to do to my faith? How will this impact my walk with God? How will this impact my family's walk with God? I think it's safe to say that we've all kind of failed to calculate this at times. Where we've made decisions not thinking through maybe this aspect of our lives. Where we live. Right? What jobs we'll have. What we will commit to. And so may I encourage us. Because Lot's going to have many choices to make decisions, just like us. And we're just being reminded again that our choices have consequences. And so maybe we resolve from here on out, as a church, right? When I have to make big decisions, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to get counsel, get counsel in this area. Not just, hey, does this financially make set success? Or it makes sense? Or does this, from a living situation, does that make sense? But from a worship situation, is this good? Is this right? Will this lead to a cultivation of my walk with Christ? Will this allow me to have a better understanding of the gospel? Will this enable me to, to serve out what God has called me to give my life to? And if it doesn't, I would say then you probably shouldn't do it. You know, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 16, He says, what does a profit of man to gain the whole world, but what? Lose his soul. See, Jesus knew. What we're seeing here is that you can gain a lot of things by making certain decisions, right? Right? You can do a lot of different things, but we need to count the cost. What will that do to my soul? So that is what. Now, what about Abram? What about Abram? Well, in verse 14, we begin to see kind of Abram's decision here. And we see a contrast in many different ways. We see God instructing Abram to lift up his eyes, rather than just Lot, who lifted up his own eyes. We see Abram given a vision over all the land. And we see Abram getting reminded from God himself of the promise of, the, of this land, all of this land will be his. And it will be given to him by who? By God himself. And God says, I will even make good on my promise that your offspring will be forever. In fact, your offspring will be so many, it will be like the dust of the earth. And if you can try to count the dust of the earth, that's how much your offspring will be. And that's a lot. Right? I'm not going to have you, wait, you know, raise your hand if you have dust in your house. 
But try to count the dust in your house this afternoon. Maybe one section, right? That one spot that just always gets dusty. But once again, Abram is reminded here, before he makes decisions, he, God shows him grace by reminding him of his promises. And aren't you thankful for that, that that's in Scripture? That despite how many times we are reminded of who God is and reminded of what he does, we forget. And so he reminds him again and again and again about what he's going to do. But notice the pronouns. When God is speaking to Abram here in this section, he says, I will give you an offspring. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land. Sometimes when we feel like God is calling us to something, we go, thanks God, I got this from here. We do that. But here, once again, right, God is going, no, 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 no. I'm not only the promise maker, but I'm the promise keeper. You follow me, and I'll show you where I'm going. Now, how does Abram respond? Well, we see in this text that he actually moves his tent to the Oaks of Mamre, which will be very key in the next chapter, chapter 14. But what do we see Abram doing besides just moving his tent? Because Lot moved his tent also. But besides just moving his tent, he does what? He builds an altar. Once again, builds this mini mountain to be reminded that his purpose in living there is not self-serving, but it's something for, far greater than himself. So he goes, he worships, he trusts, not in what his eyes have seen, but in the eyes of the Lord. Because remember, at this point, does Abram have any offspring yet? No. His wife is still barren. Does he have the land yet even? No, we're told that there's still people occupying the land. All of what God has promised, circumstantially, he hasn't seen yet at all. But yet, despite his circumstances, he still worshipped. Worship was not dependent on things were going good or bad. Now, the New Testament church actually goes to this moment in Abram's life to remind us all of something. And I want to pull this up to you. If you have a full Bible, go ahead and jump all the way over to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Acts chapter 7. That's going to be on page 914 if you're using one of those ESD pew Bibles. And it'll be on the screen as well. Now here in Acts 7, starting in verse 2, what we are actually jumping into is there's this man named Stephen. He's basically this one of the, like, the first deacons of the early church. And he had gone into kind of hot water by speaking about Jesus and the supremacy of Christ, um, especially to the Jewish people, saying, you've missed it. The promised offspring, the promised Savior, which all the Old Testament has been pointing to, has come in Christ. And they didn't like that. But Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to basically give this sermon in Acts 7. And he reminds them of this moment back in Genesis 13. So this is what he says. It says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet, 
This is important, verse 5. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So what Stephen is doing, he's, he's looking back at this moment in Genesis 13, and he says, when God called him in here, called him into the promised land, said all these things to him, he didn't give it to him right there in that moment. Not even a foot's length. He had no child. But yet, the promise was fulfilled. And it was fulfilled on God's good timing. Not Abram's, not anybody else's, but God and God alone. And so Abram, who didn't have the land, right, didn't have any children yet. He believed God, and God was faithful to him. You see, church, trusting in the words of God will always lead to life, even when things don't make sense. And that happens a lot in this world, doesn't it? Now, does this mean that Abram was sinless from here on out? Right, that he totally got it, he totally like, you know what, Lord, you're right, I messed up in Egypt, I want to worship you now, and I'm not going to forget your promises. I'm not going to turn back to myself again. Well, if you keep reading in Genesis, and we will, right, through due course, Abram sins a lot again. He actually does a lot of the same dumb stuff again, which gives me hope that God is not done with sinners who make it the same mistakes over and over and over again. But what's the point of then all this? What's the point of highlighting these areas or being reminded about Abram's life, being reminded of though he trusted in God, he still failed though? Well, I think it paints this picture of what a, is there anybody that's fully trusted God? Is there anybody that when they received the word of God promises never disobeyed it, never turned from it, never had a moment where saying, God, i got to take this in my own hands, i got to do this on my own way. Has there ever been somebody who's actually done it right? Yeah, Jesus, that's why we're here. Because there is one that has done it right, who always trusted in the plan of God, never failed like Abram, never went east spiritually like Lot did, never wavered from following God perfectly. And so once again, church, we are reminded that our hope is in not what we do. Because we like to think that we'd be Abram in the situation. I think we'd be a lot like Lot. Our hope is not in what we do. Although we should always be growing in grace, right? Abram gives us confidence that grace changes us. Grace helps us follow Christ. But our hope is in him, his life. His death, His resurrection, in whom now we get to lift our eyes to. And trust that what He began, He will finish. And here we get to actually get to follow in the same footsteps as, that, as Stephen. And let me go to the end of this sermon in, in Acts chapter 7. Go to jump down to verse 56. Because once, and Stephen went through a whole bunch of things about how the Old Testament was always pointing to Christ. I encourage you to read it. But yet at the end of this sermon, when it was clear that he was going to be killed for what he was saying, what does he do? He looks up, and he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
Church, Stephen got this unique opportunity to be able to lift his eyes up and to perceive into the eternal reign of Christ on his throne. And it's actually one of the first, one of the only times we actually see in Scripture, instead of Jesus sitting at the right throne of God, he's standing because he cares. He's looking down at Stephen. I think with a big smile on his face, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But the Son of Man, that's a language for Jesus, standing right there. The one who is in control. The one who has power in kingship. You see, Abram was called to lift up his eyes to a land that had not been given to him. And that's true for a lot of us as we're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. But we don't have to look, lift our eyes and hope, God, I hope God finishes that, that promise of bringing an offspring, bringing someone who's going to make things right. We get to lift our eyes to the fulfillment of that offspring. We get to lift our eyes to a resurrected king. We get to behold Christ, whose scripture says is the yes and amen to all of God's promises. That's really good news, church. And I pray that then every single one of us, what do we do then with this information? Right? Do we live here trying to be like Abram and not be like Lot? No. We leave here going, I want to lift my eyes to the king, the one who lived perfectly, the one who is on his throne right now. And so let's lift our eyes, but we can lift our eyes to the one whom our eyes were created to ultimately see and behold. All right, let's go ahead and end there, church. Let me pray for us. Well, Father, as we end our time in this piece of your word, I'm thankful that you are the yes and amen, that you are the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that you are the one we can put all our hope in, even when we make grave mistakes in our life, when it comes to maybe where we'll go or what we'll do, and, and we, we have to pay the consequences of those at times. But God, I, I thank you for being a God who, who never made a mistake, who never left the place that he was called to go to, that was never tempted into sin in the way that we are. God, may you just grow our hearts in grace today. Maybe be reminded of who you are and what you've done. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, church. Well, if you are able to, let's go ahead and respond.